I'm going to be reading from John 17, and that is on page 1132, according to my pew Bible, although we do have a couple of different ones, so that should get you there. starting at verse 20. This is during Jesus' last supper with his disciples, so it's at the end of his earthly ministry and the night before that he is executed. And he says this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. He's talking about his disciples. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your words, Jesus. We pray that they lay heavy on our heart and on our minds throughout this week and throughout the year. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Wellspring Worship Center again. Uh, my name is James. I'm the pastor here, and today we are spending our second week on this Who is Wellspring document. Uh, and I'm going to read that out to you. This was kind of born of the church trying to work out exactly kind of who we are, who we want to say we are. What does the church say to people when you say, what kind of church is Wellspring? Uh, I will say, after my cartwheel last week, which gathered a lot of attention, um, which is always followed up by, it was surprisingly good. Um, we should probably call ourselves the church with the pastor that are surprisingly good for cartwheels. But... I think there is probably a greater robustness to our faith than that. So. so this is this Who is Wellspring document. I read it out last week, but I'll read it out again for the folks that weren't here and as a reminder for the people that were. And as I say, it's us kind of wrestling through who we are as a community and who we think God wants us to be. And so this is something the leadership of the church put together. So who is Wellspring? This is, of course, quite a difficult question to answer. With our 126-year history, we can tell you we're not the same church that we were when we started. And we're not really the same church that we even were a year ago. Naturally, it's difficult to verbalize our identity in just one page. And we know that each person's response here would be slightly different. But we hope these answers give a comprehensive, albeit shorthand, answer. Wellspring is, first and foremost, a church that is dedicated to knowing, loving, and serving Jesus Christ. 
And because this probably doesn't differentiate us from lots of churches out there, we want to explain that a bit. We hold to the same view about who is Jesus as the church has done for 2,000 years. We believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. And these are words that are taken from the Apostles' Creed. We believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection restored the fractured relationship between God and humankind, and that both parties delight in this restoration. If we have criticism of the creed, it's that it should speak more to Jesus' life. We believe that Jesus lived in perfect relationship with God and served as a perfect example to us. Jesus was one who loved those whom society felt it difficult to love. Jesus was a voice for many whom had been silenced. Jesus was one who welcomed and created space for those whom often religious leaders of the day would not have welcomed or created space for. We believe that Jesus did all these things willingly and delightfully. His example of sharing meals together, even with people whose life experiences are very different, has grounded us as a community that does life together even when things get messy. His example of self-giving love all the way through his life and to his death and beyond, with special attention that was paid to those who have often found themselves excluded, is a cornerstone on which we build this church. So it's with all those things in mind that Wellspring has put a particular emphasis on a radical welcome to everyone. We recognize that this is an area in which many churches, ourselves included, have failed. We believe that this exclusion grieves the heart of God, and it's a posture that we, as a church, are repentant of. For a long time, we have shared that we receive all whom Christ receives. And this is a beautiful statement, but we think it needs some clarification. We want you to know that you are welcome to come as you are. Your age, ability, wealth, sexuality, gender, race, are all part of your story, and therefore things that we honor. We believe that every single person is created in the image and likeness of God, and that is something to be celebrated. Each one of you gives us a better understanding of who God is and God's love for us. We know that our ch ch church is richer and more reflective of the Trinitarian love of God because of our diversity, not in spite of it. We celebrate the inclusion and the participation of everyone who walks through the doors of Wellspring. If you're someone who is carrying hurt from the previous church experiences, please let us please know that you're not alone. Being part of the healing process for people who have been wounded is one of the great privileges Wellspring carries. We understand that trusting churches can be hard, but we promise to be patient as you work through those difficulties. We are glad that you are here. So y'all are going to have a bit of an opportunity to share and talk about this later. I know that this was, like, this can be difficult for people, and, and I recognize that. And so for people that are uncomfortable in those group settings, for people that are uncomfortable sharing in that way, I want you to know I really appreciate you sticking it through. I know that it doesn't come naturally to everyone, but it is important for us to hear from people, even from people that don't usually speak up in these situations because otherwise it just becomes me making decisions because I'm loud and I don't really want that. So <laughs> I appreciate the voices of people that find it more difficult to share. So thank you.
What was really interesting from the feedback last week is really every group I talked to, the first thing they said is, there are a lot of new people here. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's great. So that's it. Yeah, there we go. All right. That's, that's okay. Bill, he's one of the long-standing members, so he's excited about it. Um, <laughs> I will say, yeah, there is something of a hidden agenda there, but like, I kind of wanted you guys to talk to one another and recognize that, and so that's my Machiavellian scheme playing out, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but isn't that interesting? That, that was the first piece of feedback. There's a lot of new people here, and people are excited about that. That was pleasing to them. And so I actually looked at our, um, like our, the people that came last week, the registration, what do we call it? Uh, attendance, there we go. The attendance, and there were 64 people that were there. And of that 64 people, only 32 of them had ever been in this church before uh, we broke for COVID in 2020. So there's 50%. So like, look to your left and look to your right. The chances are one of those people. <laughs> Uh, and I want to say that's like delightful. That's oh, people are actually doing it. Okay, <laughs> that's delightful. That's really exciting. That shows that there are people that kind of like what we're doing and catching what we're doing. And what's really delightful is other people have stuck around as things have shifted. Like these things are really exciting. But it also means like our wonderful friends, like the Millers. You're kind of old school, actually. Like you count as that. Like <laughs> the people that have been here for longer. Same with Ian. Um, <laughs> So even folks who I think might still feel newer in the older half of people here now. But but let that settle in and, and let that be something that you're reminded of when, when we look around and when we see people on Sunday mornings. Because sometimes I think it's tempting to think, man, I wish, I wish that person would maybe reach out a little bit more. Uh, but <laughs> as it is, there's a 50% chance that they're probably feeling the same way. This is a place where I hope that we can be vulnerable with one another, where we get to share with one another and trust one another. But that, that is exciting to me, and that's something that I think we get to thank Jesus for as well. So this Who is Wellspring document, when I was putting it together, I linked quite heavily on a, a document written by a friend of mine that's a pastor of a church in Hamilton, uh, it's called Eucharist Church. They're lovely. He's great. Um, and he calls this document the one, two, threes of theology. And it's basically his attempt to nurture a church that has Christ fully at the center and where no one feels excluded. And he feels that remembering our priorities is basically the best way to do this. And last week I talked about what he would consider the one, which is Jesus. And I know that's kind of not really a spoiler alert that Jesus is the most important thing that we hail Jesus as Lord, but, but it's really important, and whatever else gets discussed, please remember that that is the most important thing, that we as Christians believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, is Lord of the universe, that every knee will bow. That's who Jesus is. That's who we are, and I talked a bit about the creed as like the only thing that Christians have really agreed on for 1,700 years, and who we think Jesus is and how that's echoed in that Who is Wellspring document that I just read out. So logically, you think I'm going to talk about the second most important thing, but I'm not. I'm going to talk about that next week. This week, I'm going to talk about the third most important thing, because it makes sense to do it this way. And what I think is actually the third most important thing, after the supremacy of Jesus and after the mysterious number two, whatever that is, uh, <laughs> is what we will call peripheral 
issues, which is really just a silly and fancy way of saying things that Christians disagree. Peripheral issues are things that Christians disagree on. And I want to say Jesus-following, Bible-believing Christians disagree on, which is quite a lot of things. There are approximately 40,000 denominations in the world, so that's 40,000 disagreements right there. Uh, And that's assuming that those denominations agree within themselves, which, spoiler alert, they do not. (laughs) They really don't. So so there are plenty of disagreements out there. But everything, every single thing that isn't the conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord is ultimately a peripheral conviction. And maybe y'all are thinking of them right now. But I'm going to name a few of them, a bunch of them, actually. So whether we baptize infants or whether we baptize adults, this is a peripheral conviction. What women are allowed to do in church, this is a peripheral conviction. What men are allowed to do in church, this is a peripheral conviction. What divorced people are allowed to do in church, what queer people are allowed to do in church. Whether we think music should be hymns or whether it should be modern style music, whether we believe the rapture happens like it does in Left Behind or whether it doesn't happen like that, whether women should be allowed to show their shoulders in church, whether men should have to wear suits in church. How we feel about birth control, free speech, vaccination, smoking drugs, coffee, alcohol, and a billion other things. Every single thing that Christians disagree on, which is nearly everything, is ultimately a peripheral conviction. There are a lot of trees. And to be clear, it's probably fairly obvious where we as a church stand on a bunch of those peripheral convictions. I am a pastor not in a suit, for one thing. This is not to say the threes don't matter. I cannot stress this enough. These threes matter, and they really matter a lot. It's just that unlike the supremacy of Jesus, all the things that I have mentioned really just aren't as clear in the Bible and can be interpreted in lots of different ways. This isn't to say all readings of scripture are valid. Ultimately, we all think our way of reading the Bible is correct. Otherwise, we wouldn't think that, right? We just think the thing the person we disagree with thinks. This is how we work, of course. And I don't think all readings of the Bible are valid. I don't think a racist reading of the Bible is valid. But ultimately, I still have to hold Christ as king above everything. We will disagree and we do disagree. And sometimes when we disagree badly, what we do is we say, well, I just believe the Bible and you don't. Which is a very dangerous place to be. Because what we're really saying there is, I believe my interpretation of the Bible. And your interpretation of the Bible is invalid. You see the difference there? Most of the people that I disagree with about the Bible know their Bible very well. (laughs) I disagree with their interpretation. I'm okay with that. They're often not okay with my interpretation, but I'm okay with that too. There's a really good chance that the people that we disagree with, the Christians that we disagree with, also believe the Bible, but we have different interpretations, and therefore we have different peripheral convictions. And so we disagree on things. Some of you will have incredibly strong peripheral convictions that maybe you didn't have a while ago. Some of you may have incredibly strong 
peripheral convictions that you used to have, you don't have any more. And that's okay too. The spirit is alive and breathing and speaking, and so it's moving, then moving, and so we get to move too. It's not a good thing to have never changed your mind your entire life. That's not how God works, I don't think. So it's okay. We don't have to see our changing of convictions as weakness or a loss, but actually, hopefully, a deeper exploration into who God is and who God wants us to be. And at Wellspring, I want people to have that freedom to have different peripheral convictions. But also, remember, they are never as important as the supremacy of Jesus. That doesn't mean those convictions aren't important. I know I keep saying it, and I have to keep saying it. These things are important. They really matter. The things that I mentioned, these are life and death issues a lot of the time. I take that very seriously. But what's really interesting is that if you look at church history, which is something I encourage you to do because it's fascinating and weird, but often these life and death issues of yesteryear become these things that we can wistfully disagree on today. Uh, my friend's document, uh, he uses the example of baptism. And if you're sitting there and, you know, there are some serious disagreements in churches and in the world right now, you might be thinking, well, baptism's kind of a softball one. I think we probably have people here who are baptized as infants. We probably have people who are baptized as adults. Uh, I was baptized at seven because I'm awkward. Who knew? But our interpretations of baptism generally speaking, aren't the thing that are either chasing people out of this church or drawing them into it. Like, if this was a burning question, no one has asked me about my theology of baptism in four years of being here. Which is fine. Like, that's one less thing to worry about, frankly. <laughs> but let's remember that it wasn't always this way. This is why it's important to know our history, to know the way that we have disagreed in the past and know the ways in which we're unified now. Those who practice adult baptism, which, by the way, is like us for the most part. We are an Anabaptist congregation. Anabaptist is just re-baptized, to baptize again. That's what that word means. So around the Reformation, a bunch of people, 500 years ago, a bunch of people said, you know what, I want to decide for myself that I want to be baptized. I don't acknowledge that baptism I had as a one-day-old, and I'm going to go back a second round. And again, there is biblical precedent for both of these things. It's fine. I have a different interpretation of Scripture than you do. However, the people in power at the time were not super into this as an idea. And both Catholics and Protestants, for what it's worth, decided that because people were getting baptized a second time, they would baptize them a third time and drown them. Literally, you like baptism so much, have a third. And they'd hold them underwater until they died. That is like, that's the beginning of Anabaptism. And that's also, that's why a bunch of Anabaptists then ran to America because they were being persecuted and they decided to do the persecuting themselves. Funny how that works. But this is not one of the church's finest moments, but I think it does illustrate the point quite well that baptism is now something that we could quite peacefully disagree on, but before it was a matter of life and death. But as I say, if it's, not in the creed, <laughs> then there's chances that those fierce arguments that we have today become those more peaceful disagreements of tomorrow. I think, as a more gentle example, I think alcohol is a really funny one. Um, I went to the wedding of someone who goes here, but I haven't asked their permission, so I won't name them. But 
doctors, the grandparents of this couple didn't go anywhere near the alcohol. The parents held like a champagne and glass for a toast, I think, but probably didn't drink any. And the couple getting married went pretty hard, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> but that shows us how these convictions can change over time. I don't think anyone there is right or wrong. I think they interpret scripture differently and they can disagree well. They can honor one another in that disagreement. And I think everyone honored each other really well in that disagreement and everyone had a great time as a result. So the threes do matter a lot. I'll say that a third time. They matter a lot, but they're not the most important thing. And I don't actually think they're the second most important thing either. The second, more important than these peripheral convictions, less important than the supremacy of Christ, but more important than those peripheral convictions, I believe, is the unity of the church. I've said for a really long time, my desire for this church is one of unity, not uniformity. There are plenty of churches out there that require uniformity. That's absolutely, that's fine. Uh, pastors don't allow dissension or disagreement, and if you break ranks, you're out. That's not who I want to be. That's not the kind of space that I want Wellspring to be. Uh, but if that appeals to you, there are lots of options out there. I will be very sad to lose you. Uh, but I don't want you to be miserable here, so I don't know. But my dream is that we be unified, not uniform. <laughs> and that's why I wanted to highlight this text just for a second that we heard earlier. And when Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you and you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In them, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved That's our two people. Less important than the Lordship of Christ, more important than all those things we disagree on, is our community being a space where people can disagree well, where we can celebrate unity, not uniformity. I'm going to speak on this a lot more next week. I just didn't feel right leaving it where it was. Um, <laughs> So there's a lot more to say about this. And so if you're thinking like, well, James, you've kind of overran a bunch of stuff and there's a lot of stuff about power and privilege and the price of unity and all of those things. We are going to get to those things next week, I promise. There's lots of time to talk about that. But I do believe that separating the ones from the threes means that we can gather and celebrate despite our differences. Remembering that those threes aren't actually as important as the supremacy of Jesus means that we can approach those people that we disagree with with a curiosity and a generosity. It means that we can focus on loving Jesus and loving our neighbor rather than loving our peripheral convictions. Our conversations don't need to be a battleground, but they can be a place of mutuality. 
that we can be less competitive and just enjoy one another for our differences. Our understanding of what the Bible is and what the Bible says becomes a conversation that we can enter into rather than a code that needs to be defended. It's a place where relationship is more important than being right. I'll finish with the best advice I've ever been given. Uh, I've probably shared it here before, but it bears repeating because I just can't get enough of it. When I was like 21 and knew absolutely everything, um, uh, my, my boss at the time, who is a wonderful guy and continues to be a wonderful guy, um, we got into an argument about something because I was right again, obviously. Um, <laughs> and he said to me, look, James, I'm not denying that you're not right a bunch of the time. Like, that's fine. But being right isn't as important as you think it is. Don't win an argument and lose a person. 